So thanks, Jeff. Uh, good morning uh, to all of you. Thank you for uh, gathering with us in this format. It's really hard to think about not being together here uh, on Dundee Road on Sunday morning. And so we just, uh, you know, to kind of update you, we just had a number of people, really an overwhelming number of people, who uh, tested positive for coronavirus this past week, many of those among our leaders and even our staff, uh, to the degree that we felt like we had no other choice uh, but to do this, uh, to hopefully stop the spread among us uh, as a church. And so uh, we thank you for your flexibility, for the, for the way that you, just your patience with us as we, as we try to um, navigate what is still a very hard time. Uh, as we're obviously well aware this morning, but thank you. Uh, pray for pray for those among us that are sick. Pray for our leaders as we continue to try to make good decisions. We're 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 trying to make the best decisions that we know how. Uh, but because this is unprecedented, none of us have ever been here before. So we just um, appreciate your patience with us as we as we do the best that we know to do. Uh, this is the part in our service where we would typically go through the liturgy that we do every week of having a. A glimpse at the law of God, which leads to prayers of adoration and confession. Uh, it's the time of Lent, so we have an extended confession, and then uh, followed by an assurance of pardon. But instead of trying to do all of that, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask. Uh, the worship folder is there in the um, event description, whether you're looking at this on Facebook or on YouTube, or you can pull up the app and find the worship folder. I just would ask that somebody in the family, maybe the dad, or if there is no dad, just someone in whatever group you're gathered with, or if you're there alone, that you would just take a moment, pause this recording, and read those scriptures, pray the prayer, go through that part of the service together as a family. I think that would be appropriate. And so I'm going to just take a 10-second pause Uh, You can pause your recording and do that, and then unpause and come back, and we'll move into the sermon. So why don't you do that? Okay, I hope that was a good uh, experience for you. We are continuing this morning in a series that we've been doing since the beginning of the year from Hebrews chapter 11, uh, and we come to the second scene in Abraham's life this morning. And so if you uh, would just follow along with me, if you want to look in your Bibles, we're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, and then going to a number of places in Genesis, to Genesis chapter 17, and then Genesis chapter 18, and Genesis chapter 21. It will be on your screen, and you can follow along as I read. Notice, uh, notice the image of laughter that pervades all of these passages, because that really is what links them together. And so Let's read together, beginning in the Hebrews passage and then jumping to Genesis in those three passages in Genesis. Here we read, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And then we go back to Genesis chapter 17 and pick up the story that the Hebrews writer is referring to there, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 17, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? 
And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then in chapter 18, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son. She shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, And after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And then in chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah, just as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah, just as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, that's a lot of scripture, but the story is really powerful. I didn't even read all of it that I wanted to, but Hebrews chapter 11 is a catalog of those who walk by faith and not by sight, and Abraham most of all, and that is why so much of the material in this chapter is devoted to him, because when you think of living by faith and not by sight, you should think of Abraham, and so what happens here in chapter 11 is we get three scenes from Abraham's life that illustrate his faith. The first we talked about last week, was his leaving his homeland to go and walk with God to the place that God would show him. The second is what we read this morning, the birth of Isaac. And at the heart of the story of Isaac's birth is a question. It's a question that all who would walk by faith are required to answer. If we're going to walk by faith and not by sight, we have to answer this question too. And remember, that's the point. Remember, chapter 12 begins... After this long list of people in chapter 11 who exist as models of faith, chapter 12 begins, and so let us also, therefore let us also do what we've just seen these people in chapter 12 doing. And at the heart of that kind of life is this question. And it's, in, it's found in chapter 18, verse 12, excuse me, verse 14. It comes to Abraham and to Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? And now it's a rhetorical question, of course. The answer is obvious. No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. But it's stated, and it's stated that way, not as a question, but as a, a statement in many places in the Bible. Jeremiah 32, for example, says this, Ah, Lord God, it is you who've made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. There, it's not a question. But it's posed here as a question and not a statement. To Abraham and to Sarah and to us because it's meant to mirror and to expose the heart of unbelief and to rebuke it. This is a rebuke. And so as a question, it's showing us what is going on as we wrestle with unbelief, which is the opposite of faith. And we should stop and we should acknowledge that struggle, the struggle in every one of us. 
the struggle here in this text because even though Abraham and Sarah are the ultimate models of faith, they are also shown to us as people who walk through incredible moments of real weakness and unbelief. They got there eventually, but not at first. Sarah's first response, we're told here in chapter 18, as God's news came to her, was to laugh to herself and in laughing to vent all of her grief and cynicism and envy. And it's a very raw moment for her. And we should be clear, such honesty like we see in her there, even that honesty is an expression of faith. It's where you have to begin most of the time. It's the first step. But the point is, walking with God in faith, that might be where you begin, but you don't stay there. It's not where you end. Eventually, you come to the place where you stop questioning God and start believing him. Where that question becomes a statement and not just a question that sits upon your heart. You answer, you answer all of the questions that begin to arise in your heart, doubts about God, by considering him, as Sarah did here in verse 11. She considered God. And so if you just read the Genesis passage, you might think that Sarah is actually a model of unbelief and not faith. Because as you read there, her cynicism is the most prominent feature of the text. Yet here she is alongside all of the others in Hebrews chapter 11, being shown to us as a model of what it means to ultimately become a person who arises and overcomes doubts and fears to trust the Lord. And so here's my question. Where are you this morning? Where are you as you sit at home uh, in this you know, unforeseen set of circumstances? What questions or doubts are you wrestling with? Let me ask it this way. How would you answer the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, immediately as I begin to ask that question, something probably just immediately begins to bubble up inside of you. You might be starting out much like the same way Sarah did. My hope is that as we focus our attention on the maker and the savior and consider him, that you might find enough courage and strength to go and to keep living by faith and not by sight, wherever, wherever you're being confronted with that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And so as we walk through these texts together, really we're just going to see two things. I want you to see there's first, there's shown to us a process. There's a process of faith that you have to go through. And then secondly, though, not only do we see the process of faith, but ultimately we see the power for faith, or at least it's hinted at, and we can go back into the Genesis text and find it there as we reflect on how Genesis connects with the rest of what the Bible teaches us. And so let's walk through each of those together, beginning first with what we mean by the process of faith, because each of these stories in Hebrews chapter 11 involves some kind of crisis. What you see in each of them, and it's more explicit in some than others, but there is a collision that takes place in the stories that are told in the Old Testament that are just being highlighted here, a collision between God's promises and some kind of obstacle or weakness or sin or unfavorable circumstance. There's a collision that takes place and the collision creates a crisis that the people involved have to walk through. Now the crisis for Abraham and Sarah is set up very well in, in verse 12. And so taking the latter part of the verse first, we're told uh, of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, descendants as many as the stars of the heavens and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. That was God's promise. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, almost word for word. We're told there that it would begin with a son, that Sarah would have a son. And so, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15, 
We read, God says, Sarai will now be Sarah, and I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she will become and I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then in chapter 18, God appears to confirm these plans, to set a specific timeline to them, concrete details. He says, This time next year, Sarah will have a son. Now, all that sounds great. One big problem. Is in light of all of that that God is promising to them, there's an obstacle, there's, there's a collision, and the collision occurs between these promises God is, these promises God is making and the reality of, of Sarah and Abraham's life. There's one big problem. Sarah and Abraham were barren. Now, Sarai was barren and had no child. That's how she's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. So when the story begins, get this, she's already 65 years old and has no children, and yet... God comes to this 65-year-old woman, this 75-year-old man, and promised a son. That's Genesis 15. Then 25 years go by. 25 years. And now, Genesis 18, Sarah is now, what is that? I've even lost count. 90 years old, and Abraham is near 100 years old. And God comes and says, it's going to be just another year, and this time next year. And you understand You understand what's going on here, and you understand why Hebrews says, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of the heavens. So when Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65, God made this promise. He said, I'll give you a son. They waited another 25 years until it was not only improbable, but it had become impossible. And so we read in Genesis 18, 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old. Well, no kidding. They were advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So biologically, biologically now, the things that needed to happen in Sarah's body for her to conceive were not happening. So you see the collision. There is God's promise of a son and the reality of Sarah's biology and barrenness, and that is the crisis of faith. And so in Romans 4, it says that every Christian, every single one of us, We walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, which means that we should all expect to find ourselves in similar situations. Now, when you do, the very first thing is to remember that it doesn't mean something is wrong. It's just the path for those who walk with God. It's the path we're forced to take. He leads through shadowy valleys, Psalm 23 says, not around them. He does not spare us these kinds of experience. He actually authors them to teach us a very important lesson to rely upon his strength and not our own. So listen to the Apostle Paul, where he describes his own life. This is in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. He says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely upon, not upon ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And listen, that's the Christian life. Full of moments and seasons and long winding plot lines where God's word collides with some kind of difficulty or dark circumstance. And the question comes, is this too hard for the Lord? Is this going to be the thing? Is this too hard for the Lord? Now I could make all kinds, I can make a big list of examples from my own life. I don't need to. I think you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Where there's, there's probably something in your life right now that you're dealing with this morning as you watch this this very moment where you're wondering, is this too hard for the Lord? And that is the crisis of faith. 
And from physics, we know that when two bodies collide, what happens is that the one of the lesser mass gives way to the one of the greater mass. It's a little more complicated than that, but we'll just leave it at that. And with Abraham and Sarah, their grief and their circumstances were the greater reality, at least at first. What they felt and what they could see were the most real things to them. So at least at first, they responded with unbelief. Abraham actually responded with unbelief first in Genesis 17. God said, you know, God said, you know, I'm going to give you a son and, and all of these things. And we read, and then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90, bear a son? He did not believe God. He said, this is ridiculous. And he laughed. And then in the next chapter, it's Sarah's turn. And I want to focus more on the detail of this part of the story. God says, this time next year. So he puts a timeline in place. This time next year, Sarah will have a son. And we were, we're told there, Sarah was listening in the tent door. She overheard what God said. But before we're told what her reaction was, we get this brief biological, excuse me, this brief bi biographical sketch in verse 11. So Sarah's there. She hears what, what the, the Lord says about the timeline of, of her pregnancy. But then all of the action of the story is interrupted in verse 11. And we're given this, this uh, biographical sketch. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with her. Now we already know all of this. So as you're reading, you kind of, you, you say, well, why, why does the narrator feel like he needs to remind us again of the details that we're already very well aware of? And it's a brilliant literary device. What's happening, he's giving us a window into Sarah's heart. The narration of the story is mirroring what was happening to her internally. She heard the promise of a son, but then she immediately began to think about her barrenness because that was the most real thing in her life. All of her emotional pain, her disappointment and her sadness of 25 years of hoping, it was all right there and she immediately weighed what God said against what she was feeling and what she could see and the result was unbelief. We're told, so Sarah laughed, Abraham laughed and Sarah laughed too. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, am I worn out? After I'm worn out, is my Lord, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And man, you can just feel the pain and the long years of disappointment in her words. They become the controlling reality of her life. She did not believe God. All the other stuff was just too real. More real than, than God's word or his power or his love. And so God was the lesser object of her heart. And he, in his word, gave way in this moment to the greater reality of her grief and her disappointment. Now, faith is the opposite. See, that's unbelief. Faith is the opposite. It is confidence in the greater reality of God, God's word, his character, his past faithfulness. These things hold greater significance than what you can see or what you can feel. And everything else, when you come up against it, gives way before him. And you grow in faith as God becomes more weighty and more real to you. And so faith, faith doesn't deny the hard realities of life. I want to be careful to say that. You can have faith and still be brokenhearted, full of fear, struggling profoundly, with doubt or uncertainty, with cynicism and despair. It's not an either or, it's a constant struggle. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who I greatly admire, he said this, he said, faith is not something that refuses to face facts. Abraham looked at the facts as they were, at their very worst, and yet though he did that, he was not at all weakened in faith. Why? Listen to this, he says, because he did not stop there. He did not just go on looking at the facts and the difficulties and the obstacles. He looked at them 
But having looked at them, he looked at something else. He looked at someone else. He goes on to say, the trouble with unbelief is that it only looks at the difficulties. It considers them and nothing else. But faith, faith does not turn its back upon problems. It surmounts them. It looks at them straight in the face and then rises above them. So faith sounds something like this. Yes, it's very honest. Yes, I'm 100 years old. And yes, Sarah is 90. And she's been barren all these years. And she is now past the years of childbearing. Yes, that's all true. But God. But God gives life to the dead. He makes something out of nothing. So my deadness, my nothingness, my, my old age is no match for him. See, it's sober, realistic, honest about the reality of the difficult circumstances, whatever they might be, but soaring confidence in the greater reality of God. Yes, yes, this. And it's hard and it's scary and I'm, and I'm terrified, but God... See, unbelief looks at the threat and says, yeah, I know God is powerful, I know he's good, and I know the Bible talks about him being faithful, but this, I mean, look at this. I mean, is anything too hard for the Lord? Yes, okay, I get it, but this. And so with faith, God is the greater reality. And when your theology collides with your circumstances, you patiently wait for your circumstances to give way. And it usually doesn't happen immediately. Remember, it was 25 years for Abraham and Sarah, but you don't give up on what you know to be true of God. You don't try to fix things in your own strength. That's the problem. That's the, that's the mistake they made. You instead posture yourself in faith and you wait. And what happened as Abraham and Sarah waited was somewhere along the way, their unbelief began to turn to faith. We're not told when. We just know that it did. It's not at all clear in the Genesis narrative. But here in Hebrews eleven eleven, it says this, by faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, which means that at some point she came to the realization that the strength she needed, she did not have. And it was when she stopped trying to seize the life she so desperately wanted that she began to receive it as a gift. And in the really big, scary stuff we face in life, it is God's power we need. The power or the wisdom or the provision that you need, you do not have. And here's the lesson. It does not come until you reach the point where you stop relying upon yourself and start relying upon him. Now, what's great about the story, I told you there's this imagery of laughter that kind of weaves itself through it. You see Abraham laughing in chapter 17 and then Sarah laughing in chapter 18. But in chapter 21, it is God who gets the last laugh. At the beginning, they both laugh. They scoff at his word. God says, I'll show you. Sarah's going to have a son, and I'm going to name him. His name is going to be Isaac, and if you don't know what that Isaac means, laughter. Now, God did that not to shame them, but to provide for them a living proof and reminder of the way that he always comes through. So Isaac was born, laughter was born, and Sarah, again, laughed, but it's a very different kind of laugh when you come to verse, verse uh, five, 6 of chapter 21. Here, Sarah's laughing, but her laughter is not a laugh of derision and cynicism. She's full of hope and wonder, not contempt. So listen to her. She says, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. For who would have said 
to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. She just can't get over it. She's overwhelmed, and it's quite a transformation, isn't it? And so here's my encouragement to you this morning. Whatever crisis you're going through, the scripture teaches that ultimately, at the end of the day, in the sum total of everything, whatever crisis it is you're going through, God will have the last laugh. And God means for us to come through these things with more faith, with more joy, with more hope, more confidence. He leads us into and not around shadowy valleys to build our spiritual muscles, our faith muscles. And so we learn faith is a process. It's not so much about where you start. It's about how you end. It's about where you end up. And so then the second thing, if that's the process, then how do you make your way through that process? What are the, what are the steps to getting through it? How do, how do you endure for however long it takes, however long you have to wait. And we don't know exactly when Sarah moved from unbelief to faith, but we do know how. So I can't answer the first part, but I can't answer the second. We're told in Hebrews 11, 11, it says, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, listen to this phrase, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Her faith came by considering God, and yours and mine does as well. Now that's a strange word there. Because it, in, the, in the Greek, it really kind of, it's disruptive. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It really means, it's a word that means to rule or to command or to have authority. So as you read it, it really seems out of place. It's the word hegemony, which refers to the people in charge who enforce their rule through cultural narratives that become the worldview of an entire society. They keep people bound in a certain way of thinking, in a certain story. And so the lesson, I think, of that word being right there is that the way you feel and the way you respond in the moment to situations you're going through is often the result of your consideration of the world, your theology, what you believe about God and the way he works in the world and his disposition toward you in particular. That's what's leading. Your heart is following whatever, whatever you believe about God and his way in the world and his disposition toward you. Now, Sarah went through a a change, and the change was a change in her heart narrative, in her worldview, in the way she, in her hegemony, right, in the way she viewed her life, because in her pain, she had come to believe something like this. This was kind of the narrative she was living within, something like, well, you know, life is just one disappointment after another, and God is nowhere to be found. He doesn't care a bit about what's going on with me. And so you're all on your, you're, you're on your own. You're all alone. There's nobody coming to rescue. You've got to make it happen all on your own. That was the story that she was living from. But then at some point, it started to change. And the world began to be re-narrated for her. And I don't know, maybe it was the morning sickness or the first kick of the baby in her belly. But we're told that at some point, she began to consider God. She began to live from a different story. The world the world became alive to her in a different way. Her, her narrative, her heart narrative changed from what I just described to something like this. Now she's, she's thinking the world is alive with hope and God is attentive and near and overflowing with generosity and love and he makes promises and he always keeps his word. And so barrenness and old age are no match for him. All things are possible. And she believed. And that was the change as she considered him faithful who had promised Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, he taught that faith didn't just click on automatically. He said, it's something that you have to activate. You have to put it to work. You have to take yourself in hand and put it to work by reminding yourself 
over and over again of what is true. For example, what we read this past week from Isaiah, where, he, where the prophet says of God in Isaiah 30, 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show you mercy. Blessed are all who wait for him. So faith comes from considering the truth of that verse and going over it again and again until it becomes the lens through which you see everything else. So considering God, as we see Sarah doing here, is a spiritual discipline. It is rehearsing the truth about God to your heart until you don't just believe it, but you begin to live from it in real time. It says that faith, there in verse 11, considered him faithful who had promised, and that's important because it means that when faced with the question, is anything too hard for the Lord, the issue, the issue that we're really dealing with is not whether we believe God's power, but whether we trust his heart. It's not really a matter of God's ability, but God's character. Is God faithful? Is he good? Can I trust him? That's the harder question to answer, but it is the question. And we're told here that Sarah, she got there. She settled the issue in her own heart. She considered him faithful. She decided that God was trustworthy, that she could trust God's heart for her despite her circumstances and her overwhelming feelings of pain and regret and fear. She considered God faithful. And faithful means that he always keeps his promises, that if he says it, he will do it every time, that ultimately he is trustworthy. If God says, I'm gonna give you a son, even if you have to wait 25 years, he'll do it. And if he comes after 25 long years of waiting and says, this time next year it will happen, then it will happen. And that's the lesson Sarah learned. And so a consideration of God's faithfulness means that you take the time to look back and you make a record of all of the ways that he has proven himself trustworthy in the past. And as you do that, what happens is it builds a case for the future. So the next time God's promises and your circumstances or your feelings collide, then you lean into the precedent and you trust that he'll come through again, just like he has all the other times. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're being called to here, to consider him faithful, to lean into his faithfulness in light of all that he's done to us in the past, to trust him for every future endeavor. But you might say, yeah, I get it, but you know, how can I be sure? Like, I mean, how can I really, really be sure? Well, Abraham asked that very question in Genesis chapter 15, which we didn't read. You can look it up later. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that part of the story. And there's just so much detail, I can't possibly, for the sake of time, give it all to you. So look later at Genesis chapter 15. But, uh, in, but God came and said and made these promises. And Abraham said, okay, Lord, I, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. I, I want to believe, but how can I really be sure? And in response, one of, the, one of the high points of the entire Bible, at the end of Genesis chapter 15 there, God cut covenant with Abraham. He took, he, he commanded Abraham to take animals uh, a, a bunch of animals and to cut them in half and uh, slaughter them, cut them in half, lay them out opposite to each other with a path going through the middle. Now, it sounds really gory, doesn't it? it? I mean, it was, but it was a common ritual in that day where two people who were making a contract with each other, they would do this, and then each party would take a turn walking through the pieces, walking through the middle of these dissected animals symbolically saying in making this covenant that, hey, if I don't keep my part of the deal we're making, then let it be done to me like we've done to these animals. 
Now what we're told there in Genesis chapter 15 is that the sun went down in a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. So the cloud and the fire uh, from Exodus, this, this theophany of God's presence, God himself appeared and he passed through the pieces. And as he does so, God turns to Abraham and he says, this is Genesis 15, 13, know then for certain. In other words, see Abraham what I'm doing? This is how you can be absolutely sure that I will keep my word. This is how you can know, Abraham, that I will be faithful to you. And God himself passed through the pieces. And in doing so, he was saying, Abraham, I promise to do all that I've said I will do for you. I will do it. And if I don't, if I fail to keep my part of this covenant that I make with you now, then may I be cut in two. But here's the thing. As you read the text, something stands out. God passes through, but only God passes through the pieces. In a normal covenant, both parties would, but in this covenant, God is the only one. Abraham does not pass through, and that's the big surprise. And by that, God was saying, Abraham, I've already made promises about my part, but Abraham, if you should fail to keep the conditions of this covenant, if you don't play your part in this agreement, then may I be cut in two. So God is taking responsibility for his part and for Abraham's part of the covenant. It's, it's an amazing story of God's grace. And of course, we know that if you fast forward all the way to the Gospels in the New Testament, we know that centuries later, a darkness came down again. And it was so great and so dreadful that it blotted out the sun in the middle of the day. And there was Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross, being torn in two because of our sins because of our covenant infidelity, because of our failure to keep covenant with God, suffering our covenant curse, just as, Abra- just as Abraham was warned by God, that, that whole ceremony there. And here's the lesson. The lesson in seeing Jesus hanging upon the cross, fulfilling the word of God to Abraham there in Genesis chapter 15. It's just this. God will not fail you. Consider the links to which he has gone to love you. He gave his only son for you. Won't he come through then in every other way? I mean, we're told in the Bible, all of God's promises find their yes in him. In other words, the work of Jesus for you has opened God's heart wide to you. And so now now it is his joy to come through for you in every way that he promises for Jesus' sake. But also, here's the other thing. Not only will God not fail you, you cannot fail you. Your sins, your mistakes, you can't get in the way of God fulfilling his promises. He's faithful even when when we are faithless. For he cannot deny himself, Paul writes to Timothy. And so for God to prove unfaithful to you, for him to fail to overcome even your faithlessness with his grace, we're told there that he would have to deny himself. And that he cannot do. And that ultimately is the lesson of Abraham and Sarah's story. That he is indeed trustworthy. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's God's faithfulness that answers that question, not his power. Sarah considered him faithful. What about you? We're going we're gonna to sing the hymn we're most familiar with, Great is Thy Faithfulness, in just a minute as we close. But there's another hymn by Isaac Watts that reflects on God's faithfulness too that I just want to leave you with as you consider. Do you consider God's, God faithful the way Sarah did as the grounding of your faith in the character of God? Listen to these words from Isaac Watts. He says this, Our God, how firm his promise stands, Even when he hides his face, he trusts in our Redeemer's hands his glory and his grace. Then why, my soul, these sad complaints? 
since Christ and thou are one. Thy God is faithful to his saints, is faithful to his Son. Beneath his smiles my heart has lived and parts of heaven possessed. I'll praise his name for grace received and trust him for the rest. Would you pray with me? So, Father, on this weird Sunday morning where we are not together yet again, after so many months of things being somewhat normal, just it's so discouraging to be back in this place, but I pray, Father, you would bolster our faith, that you would buoy our hearts against the frustration or the sadness or the anger that we might feel, and to help us to give consideration in these moments to your past faithfulness. Our lives are full uh, of a record of time and time and time again, you coming through for us in powerful ways, in unexpected ways, where where your promises and our circumstances collide, and yet time after time after time, our circumstances ultimately give way, and your promises prove themselves true. You, indeed, are trustworthy. We acknowledge that. Uh, but in many ways, we can still live doubting your heart. And so as we prayed last week, as Jeff continued to just lead us in praying, and as we would say again this week, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. That's our cry as we end this morning. And so as we sing this song, um, we may sing it because we know it to be true. We may need to sing it in order to talk our hearts into believing it to be true. But either way, would you glorify yourself in us so that you might become the weightier, weightier more real, more profound reality of our lives that we might be found faithful to walk in the footsteps of Abraham as you've called us to, that you might be glorified in us. And so we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so thank you again for joining us in this format. Our plan is to next week, March 7th, be back in person with three services to have a mask-mandated service at 8 o'clock like we did in February on Communion Sundays, where if you're going to come at 8, please wear a mask. Uh, and then we'll have our other two services as normal. Obviously, we just we're, that's the plan. Plans could change. We just ask you in advance to be prayerful about that and to just be ready to pivot if, if something were to change in that. Pray that pray for those that are sick that they would be well quickly and that no one else would get sick in our church. And so that, that's kind of what, what we're expecting in, in the days to come. I'm going to change it up just a little bit this morning and as a benediction, uh, instead of reading the normal benediction, read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, take these words, receive them as God's promise You'll see what you'll see his his um, Paul yet again evoking God's faithfulness uh, and giving us um, a, a sh- assurance that God indeed will do all that He's promised to do with us. And so, receive this word of benediction as you go about your day and whatever this next week uh, might hold for you. We miss you. We look forward to all being together again. Uh, receive this word now. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Amen. God bless you. See you soon.